They say the owl was a baker's daughter. Lord, we know what we are, but not what we may be. What is man that thou art mindful of? The son of man that thou visitest him. An aged man is but a paltry thing. A tattered coat upon a stick. Unless soul clap its hands and sing, and louder sing for every tatter in its mortal dress. For the billions and billions of strange objects in the cosmos, you are beyond doubt the strangest. But behind the scenes, in the green room, you might say in the very back of your mind, in the very depths of your soul, you always have a very tiny sneaking suspicion that you might not be the you that you think you are. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, fellow laborers in the vineyard. Sawete, Wanjong, Westuhal. Welcome to another episode of Avalon Mentors Podcast. I'm your host, William J. Lassiter, reading the world of deception, lies, and made up facts, and in their stead, bringing you ideas, insights, hope, and inspiration distilled from the greatest and noblest artifacts of human culture available to us to cast off the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light. In this series, we are exploring together the Republic, or Politeia in Greek, of Plato, Written in Greek in 375 BC, the work stands as one of the most riveting and influential works of Western culture. So join me now as we continue our journey through Plato's The Republic. So last episode, we were looking at the Republic, Book One. If you recall, the main theme of the work is justice. What is the nature of justice? How do we define justice? And we got two major definitions of justice that we looked at in the last episode. The first was by the character Cephalus. And the second was by his son, Polemarchus. Remember that the characters in this dialogue, Socrates and his interlocutors, are visiting at the home of Cephalus, there in the Piraeus area of Athens, and they are getting together over drinks and over food after seeing the festival of Bendis. And the conversation drifts to what the nature of justice is. The first two definitions that we got of justice came from Cephalus and Polemarchus. The third will come from Thrasymachus. 
So Cephalus says that justice is the truth in giving back what a man has taken from another. That's essentially just Aristotelian justice, because Plato uh, his, has a, a disciple, Aristotle, who's far more practically minded. And Aristotle's coming to definitions of things based upon what he observes in the world. So Aristotle suggests that there are two types of justice, rectificatory and distributive justice. Uh, and re- distributive justice is giving to everybody what's due to them in the world. And then rectificatory is when, it's a great word, rectificatory. Rectificatory justice is when someone has taken something from someone else and they have to rectify the situation by giving back what they took. So that's rectificatory. So it's distributive justice, you could say the, the, the truth, I suppose, and rectificatory, what a man, t- giving back what a man has taken from another. So Cephalus is basically giving a definition of justice that later will evolve into Aristotle's definition of justice and consequently become sort of the basis of Western legal justice. His son, Polemarchus, picks up the argument after Cephalus leaves. Cephalus, the name Cephas, Cephalus, means the head. And so he is the start of the argument, the head of the family, but also the head of the argument. And his son, Polemarchus, picks up the argument and he defines justice first, agreeing that Cephalus' definition is correct, but he refines it a bit and he says that justice is giving to each what is owed to him. And Socrates begins poking holes in that and, and showing to everybody that this isn't really a satisfactory definition of justice. So Polemarchus refines it again and he says that justice is doing good to friends and harm to enemies. And Socrates shows him that if that's the case with justice, then sometimes you know, your friends are not helping you at all. So if they are not helping you, then they're not doing justice to you. Because like with thieves and the like, or with uh, murderers, they may have friends that are supporting them, but that's not really helping them at all. So it's not doing good to them. Then Polemarchus refines it again. And uh, he says it's a sort of uh, form of guarding things. right? And Socrates says, well, if that's the case, then justice is useful for guarding things when not in use. So justice is merely something that's useful for things that aren't being used. Paradoxical, ironic. And again, Polemarchus goes back to the drawing board, and he has to refine it again, which leads Socrates to define or to, to clarify what he's saying. He says that justice is a form of robbery, right? Because it's a certain art of stealing, as he says, for the benefit of friends and the harm of em- enemies. Polemarchus says, yeah, that's seems right, but it also doesn't seem right because how can justice be a form of robbery? You know, Socrates says, if, for instance, you're going to be guarding something, don't you have to know how best to steal a thing in order to guard it best? So justice is like a form of robbery, right? Yeah, and certainly stealing things for the benefit of friends and the harm of enemies, but you're still stealing something. So how does your definition work? Basically, your definition is inadequate. Polemarchus does agree that it's a certain human virtue. And that's sort of where we are in the conversation when suddenly Thrasymachus jumps in. And to make a long story short, Thrasymachus gives us a third, really, major form or major definition of justice. He says that justice is the advantage of the strong. He calls it a high-minded innocence, but he essentially says that justice is advantage of the strong. And that's where we pick up the argument in the second part of Book 1. Thrasymachus lays out a challenge to Socrates, which is the challenge of the skeptic or the cynic towards this idea of justice, this noble, beautiful idea of justice. Because for Thrasymachus, justice is merely just the advantage of the stronger person. Might makes right. Whoever is in control gets to define what justice is. So who is this Thrasymachus guy anyway? I mean, he really was a character in 
Athens. He lived between 459 BC and 400 BC. He was a citizen of Chalcedon on the Bosphorus originally. And apparently he was a public speaker, a sophist, teacher in Athens. Though it's unclear what exactly the nature of his work was. He ends up to be credited with, as it says in the entry here, rhythmic, increasing the rhythmic character of Greek oratory, especially the use of the pionic rhythm in prose, and a greater appeal to the emotions through gesture. Seems like he has a number of writings that he left behind. There's a great textbook, Subjects for Oratory, Proemia, and Preponderances, and other works connected with rhetoric. So he seems to have been uh, a character that lived during the time of Socrates, in the time of Plato, a rhetorician, sophist, teacher, uh, gave several different speeches publicly. Um, what he represents in the work seems to bear more by his name, his namesake, what, it, what the name actually translates as, than who, what his character was. Plato never really had much truck for sophists and public speakers. He didn't really like them very much, and they come off pretty badly in most of his dialogues. But I think the name is what really is important here, not so much the character. Thrasymachus means bold fighter, or rash fighter. Sometimes it can be translated rash fighter. So he's very rash himself. And so he comes in the dialogue here to represent an attitude himself, rather than... Um, the actual historical person being someone that uh, was antagonistic or rash. Now, I don't know, but critics differ on why uh, Plato includes Thrasymachus in the dialogue in this manner. But I do like the idea best that it's his name that is, lends him to become the character that represents justice as the advantage of the strong. Well, when Thrasymachus then barks at Socrates... He, uh, he demands that the philosopher give his own definition of justice. Stop being so evasive. You know, tell, us, tell us what you think. And Socrates says, <laughs> he says, I was astounded when I heard him, and looking at him I was frightened. I think that if I had not seen him before he saw me, I would have been speechless. That's, that's a reference to a basilisk or to a minotaur. You know, that if you don't see, if, you, if the basilisk sees you first, and then you turn, and he's already got his gaze on you. He'll turn you to stone. Similar to Minotaur, if he sees you first, he comes at you. Uh, but if you see him first, you have a chance of defending yourself. So Socrates says, if I, you know, if I had not seen him before he saw me, I would have been speechless. I would have been turned to stone. I would have been held in place and, and uh, destroyed by him. So it indicates, to some degree, that Thrasymachus in this is not just the rhetorician from the 5th century uh, B.C. Athens, he's actually this monstrous character in the story. He tries to take over the argument, and it says he has to be restrained by the men sitting near him. He's also described as hunched up like a wild beast, and um, Socrates says he flings himself at us as if to tear us to pieces. So here he's being restrained, he's hunched up, he flings himself. He's like some kind of beast or, or a predator lurking, waiting to, to capture the philosopher here, to capture Socrates. Um, Polemarchus, uh, sorry, Polemarchus and Socrates then, because of this, they, they get all in a flutter from fright. They're really kind of scared by him, startled by him, because he just shouts into their midst. Then he scolds them, he demands they say what justice is, he, res he, he even uh, demands they say what justice is, and then gives them parameters by which they can, they, they can answer him. He says he doesn't want any inanities. This is called like uh, uh, stacking the stacking the, uh, the the cord here. He's he's sort of um, defining how the answer is going to be, how he wants it, rather than listening to see what the answer actually is. I mean, the minute you call it inanities, you know, don't say anything inane, don't say anything stupid and foolish, like the following, kind of limits what he's going to get back. He already knows what he wants to hear. So he, uh, he, he prevents Socrates from saying anything beautiful about justice. He says, I don't want to hear that justice is the needful or the helpful or the profitable or the gainful or the advantageous. 
None of that stuff. Uh, so here he is as this monster that kind of freezes Socrates, startles him, freezes him, um, almost petrifies him. And you got to wonder, why would Plato create this character? As in, Remember, thinking about this as a drama. How does Plato, why does Plato create a character that's like a monster? Probably because of what he then is going to say he thinks justice is. Because for Plato, this definition of justice as the advantage of the stronger is a monstrous definition. And what Thrasymachus is going to suggest ends up being a, mon- a monstrosity of human existence. Um, it is not a noble and good idea. It is rather whatever is defined by the person with the largest cudgel, the largest spear, the, the, the biggest group of bullies that follow him around. Um, if you're in power and you get to define justice, then you can do all sorts of rotten things. That also seems to suggest that what Thrasymachus himself is suggesting is that there is no connection of justice to a divine realm at all. There is no divine form of justice or a source of justice from a divinity at all. It's merely a creation of those in power. And that's monstrous to Plato and to Socrates. So Thrasymachus's comment that justice is the advantage of the stronger eventually gets taken down by Socrates. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't have the rest of the book. It's a common threat that, may, that might makes right. Whoever is in power is able to define the terms. See, that creates an arbitrary nature to justice. Justice becomes completely arbitrary. It's changeable with each regime change, or, e- or even each change of mind by a dictator. A dictator can change his mind and say, justice is this one day and that another. But it also is, is an oppressive claustrophobic worldview if for instance it's only created by human beings there's no nothing beyond this physical world then the world as hamlet later says becomes uh rotten it's it's uh, bounded in a nutshell um the world is a prison denmark is a prison hamlet says if for instance we believe that ideas like justice are merely creations of the human mind with no connection to another world, then this, this is all we have, this materialistic world. And that seems to be a bigger problem for Socrates, for Plato, than merely defining what justice is, or merely defeating uh, Thrasymachus. See, Glaucon, who is one of the interlocutors of Socrates, who is also the brother of Plato, is a representation of Eurydice from the Orpheus and Eurydice myth. And Glaucon has metaphorically fallen into the underworld. That means that he has adopted or is about to adopt the vision that this is all there is, just this physical world. And in a materialistic world, the only real thing to try and grasp for is power, political power especially. If that's the case, why not accept the idea that justice is the advantage of the powerful? That purely materialistic worldview is claustrophobic, Plato suggests, and damning. It damns a soul to um, thinking that this is a prison house. Now, Plato doesn't believe in damnation per se, so we have to be clear about that. But he does seem to suggest that some characters, like Glaucon, are about to ascribe to this worldview in which things like beauty and hope and joy and, and, and artwork are merely figments of the imagination. And if you're told all your life that politics is that solution to life, that there's nothing more than politics, politics is about strength and dominance, why wouldn't you see justice as the advantage of the strong? Right? Blessed, blessed are the buff, for they will conquer the earth. But the rock goes even deeper, see? Because Thrasymachus' view that justice is the advantage of the stronger 
prompts him also to think of other people as other humans. Not as humans, but as sheep to be fleeced and eaten. You see, buying into the, the default position of humanity the, that life is about power leads a person to think of other humans not as individuals, but as sheeple, as rival predators. Other people are obstacles to power. Like John Paul Sartre said, hell is other people. And if you think about the human beings as nothing more than sheep to be fleeced or predators to be destroyed, there's no limit to the, to the manner and amount of atrocity you can, you can inflict on your fellow human beings. If you don't see them as beautifully and wonderfully made, they are nothing more than obstacles to your gaining of power. And that's a big problem. But there's more still. Because if you subscribe to this idea that justice is the advantage of the strong or the powerful, if you subscribe to the idea, the materialistic idea that there's nothing more than power, then you consider such ideas like mercy and beauty and goodness, truth and love and honor as, well, as, as a high-minded innocence, as the dream of suckers or, or fools, um, people that can be led around by a Machiavellian politician who, who seeks to corral his flock. So he uses all those good ideas like mercy and beauty and goodness and truth and love, uses them merely to maintain his own control. That's a very jaded view. It's a jaded view of anything good. Um, and goodness itself, in that case, would then fade into oblivion. There is no such thing as goodness in such a worldview. That it's merely a pipe dream. It's merely a term, a, a, a knee-jerk reaction term, a catchphrase, a piece of rhetoric and sales. And that's a very bad thing. There's even a, another reason why this advantage of the strong is dangerous or difficult. If you buy into the idea that power is all there is, that the material world is all there is, if you buy into that idea, you end up regarding the will of the individual as the only reliable thing. That is, through the strength of will, the individual gains power and triumphs in the end. That is, our sheer will drives us to seize power. That's uh, the will to power, which is used in the, in the Nazi regimes. Now, I'm not bringing this up as like, you know, we're all Nazis, but the ultimate end of this is that if you subscribe to power, the most powerful person is what he is because of sheer will. That's, uh, that's essentially the ubermensch of Nietzschean thought, the man who is above everyone else. And if one gains that, one gains that at the loss of joy and happiness and innocence and the vision of beauty, and you gain it at the, probably at the expense of other people's happiness and life, um, you end up gaining that, that thing by, by, by very bad actions. And if you don't end up gaining that thing, what recourse is there for you? I mean, if you subscribe to the idea that the only good thing in the world is power, then what happens when you fail at being powerful? The, those who are powerless have really only one um, end or terminus for their failure. Suicide. So that killing themselves is the only real option when they fail at their gambit for power. That's a very bad state to be in, I think. And I think Plato is suggesting that Thrasymachus worldview is a worldview that is a disease. It's like a sickness. So his defeat, Socrates' defeat of this idea about justice, can't merely be a brief intellectual refutation. He has to see, he has to thoroughly defeat Thrasymachus, make him look like the fool, in order that he actually defeat this sickness or cure this sickness. So how does Socrates go about defeating this worldview that Thrasymachus presents? 
That is the worldview that justice is the advantage of the stronger. Well, first he does this by showing that the laws made by the strong are not advantageous for the strong. A ruler's first concern is not for himself, but for his people. Thrasymachus resists that, and he resists the obvious logical conclusions the whole way, but he's forced by the logic of an argument to finally accept that there isn't ever anyone who holds any position of rule, insofar as he is ruler, who considers or commands his own advantage rather than that of what is ruled and of which he himself is the craftsman. It's looking, Socrates says, to this and what is advantageous and fitting for it that he says everything he says and does everything he does. Now, most people say, well, that's, that's a crushing logical argument. But actually what has happened is that Socrates has not done logic as much as analogic. In other words, what he's done is he's shown to Thrasymachus that the horse trainer does what he does for the good of the horse. And the uh, trainer of young men does what he does for the good of young men. And that the, um, every, every, uh, every different profession does what it does, not for its own sake, but for the good other thing it's doing. Then he makes an analogy, an analog, and says that ruling is a profession, like every other profession. Therefore, it follows the same model, the same form. And if it follows that same form then it's going to do what it does for the sake of the ruled, not for the sake of the ruler. That's, that's not technically a good argument, right? because you don't follow from point one to point two to point three. What you do is say point one is like point A. And because of that, point two will probably be like point B. And you make this connection one thing to the next. But what I think Plato seems to suggest over and over again is that we think, humans think, by analogs. We see an image, and the image corresponds to something, and we say that must be a good image. It's correct. It's true. We do this all the time. You know, when we look at a movie or we read a book, and it sits well with us, that movie or that book gives a language for us to think about something. It's an analog. We say, this is like that. And because we do that, then we're willing to accept certain principles that are, that are revealed through this book or this movie or whatever it is, this form of artwork. So from the very start, Plato, Socrates as the embodiment of Plato, is really setting up an, anal- an analogical form of argument. If you accept that this profession is for the good of the thing it's working for, and this profession is for the good of this thing that it's working for, and every profession is for the good of the thing that it's working for, you have to accept that a ruler is working for the good of the ruled. Now, Thrasymachus resists this, these, these, these conclusions the whole way, but he's forced by the argument to finally accept the following. There isn't ever anyone who holds any position of rule insofar as he is ruler who considers or commands his own advantage rather than that of what is ruled and of which he himself is the craftsman. It is looking to this and what is advantageous and fitting for it that he says everything he says and does everything he does. In other words, the good ruler is always working for the good of the ruled. Thrasymachus can't respond, but instead he insults Socrates. So there is no response on the part of Thrasymachus. He might have said, well, you're using an analog, and I'm not going to follow that analog. But he doesn't do that. He might have asked, well, what do you mean by a good ruler? What is this good that you're talking about? But he doesn't do that. Instead, he insults Socrates. And this is an indication both of the character of Thrasymachus, what kind of man he is, but also of the fact that Socrates has a leg up on him in the argument. So Thrasymachus says to Socrates, do you have a wet nurse? 
because she neglects your sniveling nose and doesn't give it the wiping you need. Then he goes off on a tirade about how injustice is mightier and freer and more masterful than justice, and that it is the advantage of the stronger and the unjust is what is profitable and advantageous for oneself. All this is comical. It really makes Thrasymachus look like a fool, like a comic fool. Now, I'm going to go back here for a minute to something I said earlier, is I really think that Plato is a mytholo, uh, mythopoet. He's a mythopoesis guy. He's creating mythology rather than a philosopher. His creation here is of a foolish-looking character who espouses a very dangerous worldview. The worldview is one which seems common enough because we've certainly seen enough dictators in human uh, history to say, well, that's what a lot of people seem to accept. But if this were pure philosophy, we would have a philosophical series of ideas, one that followed the other. Instead, what it is, is on stage, if you will, this fool professes these things and he refuses to accept the analog that's set up. So Plato describes, or Socrates describes the idea then that Thrasymachus even delivers the, uh, the, the, the massive refutation of Socrates like a foolish creature would deliver it. He says, after pouring a great shower of speech into our ears all at once, right, he wants to leave the group, but he has stayed by the others. They prevent him from going. So he seems almost like a child saying, that's what I think, that's it, and then stumps out of the room. But when he's pressed by Socrates, rather than accept where human thoughts take him, a monster like Thrasymachus grows even more violent and more entrenched, and even threatens to give a forced feeding to Socrates' soul. In other words, he plans to cram his ideas down Socrates' throat, to outshout him, <laughs> like some sort of I don't know, social justice warrior with a megaphone, out shouting Jordan Peterson. That's what Prosimicus suggests he's going to do. The whole exchange is really very humorous. And intentionally so, because if, again, if this is a drama on stage, the audience laughing at such a character would, by mimetic knowledge, that is, um, imitation, or by uh, analog would see that kind of suggestion in the real world as laughable. When an Adolf Hitler or a Pol Pot or a Fidel Castro gets up there and says, now I will define what the right is because I have the power, a group of people that had been used to this would laugh them out of power. They would be laughable. Evil and, and people that are hell-bent on power have very little sense of humor. I mean, try, t try telling a joke to an SJW crowd. Try telling a joke to a group of Illinois Nazis. It's very difficult to get a response other than just yet more yelling and screaming and violence. But it's important to note that what Plato is doing is not defeating Thrasymachus merely by logical argument. He's defeating him by making fun of him, making him appear the embodiment of a fool. It's very similar to, as I mentioned a minute ago, the Illinois Nazis from, from uh, Blues Brothers, or like uh, the Hitler and Jojo Rabbit, the movie Jojo Rabbit, or um, it's kind of like Springtime for Hitler that's done by Mel Brooks. You make the character into something that's laughable, and then you defeat him before you ever defeat him. Uh, there, there's a great song during the World War II, um, which was uh, <laughs> done by a, a band, an American band, um, and Spike Jones was the leader of the band. He, he created the song. It was, um, when the Fuhrer says we is the master race and we hile right in the Fuhrer's face. And that song became wildly popular because it was laughing at the Fuhrer. It was making fun of him, making fun of Adolf Hitler for his, his ideas and his attempt to take over the world. And in some ways, perhaps that's the right response to dictators and to uh, political bosses 
is that ultimately they are laughable figures. And Plato, in attempting to laugh at Thrasymachus, is creating a mythology. He's creating a, a myth, a story, or an image that we can then imitate when we deal with dictators ourselves. So Socrates has Thrasymachus on the ropes, and he does so partly by using analogic, analog, but also by ridiculing him, making him look like a fool. And Plato contributes to this by having the character of Thrasymachus act like a fool. So Thrasymachus doesn't respond then with uh, good arguments against Socrates. Rather, he goes into the sulks like a little, a little child. He starts sulking, arms crossed and glaring at everybody around him. And even after Socrates presents a beautiful vision of justice, saying that the, the good aren't willing to rule for the sake of money or honor, or if a city of good men came to be, there'd be a fight over not ruling, or that a true ru ruler really does not naturally consider his own advantage, but rather that of the one who is ruled, even then, Thrasymachus remains in anger against Socrates. One wonders, like, how long does he remain in anger? Is that for the next nine books of the Republic? Because that's a long time to be angry. He actually drops completely out of the conversation, doesn't seem to uh, involve himself in the conversation again for the rest of the Republic. He's just gone. So you can imagine him lurking in the background, ready to pounce again when he gets the chance. But consider for a minute this vision that, that uh, Socrates puts forward. The vision of justice that he puts forward, where the good aren't willing to rule for the sake of money or honor, and they can't be bought, therefore, nor can they uh, uh, be um, uh, bribed through honor, uh, that the true ruler does not naturally consider his own advantage, but rather that of the one who is ruled, so everybody in the, in the community uh, considering the advantage of everyone else or um, the, the idea that there would be a fight over not ruling, which is almost humorous, that seems to suggest a community of self-aware and humble people, uh, a community where people are living for the good of others and where they're working to create this, this uh, community of love. It's, it's really, it's a vision of... Of, of heaven you know it's, it's like if it's like the dante dante's vision of the paradiso one could even say the city of god by saint augustine is is based in this idea of justice that everybody's looking out for everyone else and honestly when people of goodwill get together that's what they do that's what they are they're bent on they're not bent on their own self-promotion they're really bent on helping other people around them and giving of themselves and providing goods for people that need goods. It's really, um, it's a beautiful vision. But Thrasymachus calls this then a very high-minded innocence. He says, justice is for fools, right? Ignorant people believe in justice, but life is more nuanced, he says. Well, it indicates anyway. Life is nuanced, right? Educated people understand the world's a cruel place. These ideas are, they're, they're, they're play school fantasies. I mean, here in the real world, in the, in the real world of, of, of grown-ups, right? Only power delivers. Only power delivers. G.K. Chesterton would, would, would laugh this into the gutter. I mean, Chesterton himself was one who was very platonic in his his vision and his uh, writings. And he's, he frequently suggested that this real world of adults, right, this, this vision of, um, of uh, the, the enlightened people is, is really uh, paltry compared to what are called play school fantasies. Chesterton would suggest that uh, play school fantasies are really the reality. And I think Plato is, is, is far more bent in that direction and Plato seems to be suggesting, Socrates seems to be suggesting that what, it, what Thrasymachus considers to be high-minded innocence or play school fantasies is only called that because Thrasymachus or a man like Thrasymachus cannot see the really real, cannot see the truth and the beauty and the goodness. Um, kind of like 
in uh, C.S. Lewis's work, The Last Battle, where the, the, I think it's the dwarves are in small boxes and they think it's, that's all there is to the world. and um, They can't get out of these little cages they're in. Um, Socrates wrestles with Thrasymachus again, therefore, showing him certain things. And uh, he, it's like it's a wrestling match. He gets in there and he grapples again right, with Thrasymachus. Probably because Thrasymachus is offering such a challenge, but also because you know Socrates is, is a, or Plato is a wrestler, and so he's thinking you've got to grapple again with the guy until he's down. So Socrates shows one that the man who knows things is wise, that the wise man is the same as the good man, and that the man who is both wise and good will not want to take advantage of other wise and good men. You don't, if anything, you'd want to take an, uh, advantage of foolish and evil men. And therefore, Socrates says, therefore, the just man is like the wise and good man, because he doesn't want to take advantage of other wise men or other just men. And the unjust man is like the bad and unlearned or evil and foolish man, because he wants to take advantage of everybody. So again, he's showing... He's wrestling with Thrasymachus verbally, and he's showing that Thrasymachus is himself evil and foolish, bad and unlearned. Though he doesn't say it directly, that's what he's revealing to everybody else. If you hold this idea that might makes right, that justice is the advantage of the strong, you are bad, unlearned, evil, and foolish. So there's a sense of comedy pervades all this, as I said before. Throughout these exchanges, uh, Thrasymachus does not easily agree to all this. He drags his feet. He resists like a schoolboy, forced to do his sums. Um, he produces, as, <laughs> as Plato says, he produces a wonderful quantity of sweat, for it was summer. But see, we know that Socrates has brought Thrasymachus to heel. He's brought him to his knees. He, he, has, he has grappled with him enough to, to show not only that the ideas are ill-headed, but that Thrasymachus and other dictators like him are buffoons, are fools. They're not noble. They're not good. They only use nobility and goodness as crutches or props or tools to manipulate others. But we know that he has brought him to heal because, as Plato says, or Socrates says, I had not... I, seen, I saw something I had not yet seen before. Thrasymachus blushing. And this is a marvel. It's described by, by Socrates as a marvelous thing. The word in Greek is thaumata. And it's startling how often that word comes up during this work. Thaumata, thaumos, thaumatazo, means marvel or, or wonders. It comes up over and over again in the book. So you could ask, why does it come up so often? Why does that word wonder or marvelous come up so often in this work? I mean, one thing to consider, and I'll bring this up again, is that all philosophy begins in wonder, Plato says. And that's later emphasized again by Aristotle. All philosophy begins in wonder. Thaumata. All philosophy begins in thaumata, thaumatazo. Wondering at things is the basis of all of our philosophical understanding. Why does the sun rise in the east? What is this thing that trees do that causes them to have food you know what is why do birds fly why are there colors in the world who created all this those are wonders and if we begin to see the world as wonderful then we begin asking questions about it and engaging in the conversation that's been going on for thousands if not millions of years all philosophy begins in wonder and that word thaumatos comes up over and over again almost like a recurring chorus to a song almost like a, a thematic element in a piece of artwork. Which is why, again, I think that Plato is actually a mythopoet. He's creating a mythology. 
and it's a mythology that inspires wonder. Why? Because I think Plato believed that what he was trying to do was inspire in people a philosophic attitude. The unexamined life is not worth living, he says elsewhere. And our examined life is the very nature of philosophy. So if we are going to live a truly rich life, we live a life where we examine things, we ask questions. And what prompts us to ask questions? Thaumata. Marvels. That's where it all starts. Marveling at things. So, Thrasymachus blushing. That's a marvelous thing. It's a thaumata. It inspires philosophy. But why does he blush? Why does Thrasymachus blush? As I said before, it's an indication that that Socrates has grappled with him and got him uh, to, to heal. But why does anybody blush? You know, you you blush because uh, of love. You blush because you have been exercising. You blush because you are embarrassed by something. In this case, it seems like Thrasymachus blushes because he recognizes that he has not only been proven intellectually wrong, but that he has also been publicly humiliated and made to look like a fool. It seems like he has this interior knowledge suddenly that everybody around him is looking at him like a sweating, blustering, spluttering animal. It's, it's because he, he knows he's in a headlock and he, he cannot respond in his normal violent manner, lest he seem to be trying to get the advantage of a wise and good man and making a public harangue and thus prove himself bad and unlearned and tyrannical and unjust. It's like watching somebody who has suddenly realized that they have been destroyed in in uh, mixed martial arts or something, or destroyed in chess, or uh, destroyed in uh, in sports, and they suddenly ha- it dawns on them there's they cannot get out of this headlock. That's the blushing that he seems to be doing. It's it's perhaps it's the inmost heart of Thrasymachus realizing that he's wrong. Well, whether he, he knows or, or, or not, um, Thrasymachus refuses to assent to the goodness, to agree to it. And instead, he, he, uh, he insults Socrates, like a cornered beast again. He says, Just as with old wives who tell tales, I shall say to you, All right, and I shall nod and shake my head. In other words, he's going to, he's going to play along outwardly. But interiorly, he's seething. He's he's furious and ashamed and embarrassed. He doesn't he doesn't believe what Socrates is suggesting, this high-minded innocence, because he refuses to believe. He doesn't want to do it at all. Now, on the one hand, that's very childish to behave that way. It's very childish to simply say, I refuse to 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 accept this, and I'm just gonna pretend like I do. It's also comical. Right? Because it's you know a grown man acting like a child and <laughs> making an idiot of himself, even by just saying, I'm going to pretend and play along. But there's also something more to it, because when, when he does say, I'm going to pretend like I'm agreeing with you, even though I don't agree with you, he's lurking again. He's, there's something sinister here, and the, sort of the, the animalian or monstrous side of him backs down and lurks and, and doesn't come immediately out. It goes back to what I said at the beginning, how can you convince us if we do not listen? It's possible that there are people in the world who do not agree to things and yet play along waiting for the moment when they can pounce forth and, and destroy other people. It's also possible that no amount of argument, logical argument, can actually persuade someone. Because they can simply, as it says, uh, say all right and nod and shake their head. I also think there's something here that Plato is uh, suggesting that in the not believing because he refuses to believe, Thrasymachus is damning himself. Again, Plato doesn't use the terminology of damnation, but in Christian thought, the idea is that the only unforgivable sin is a sin against the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean? That means that the only unforgivable sin 
is a sin where we refuse to be forgiven. We refuse to have the grace of God enter into us. God can't do all things. I mean, that seems strange, but he can't do all things. He cannot violate the individual will. He cannot force a person to accept grace. So if a person says, God cannot save me, or I'm beyond redemption, or even I refuse redemption, then redemption is impossible. There, there's a great line out of a, a Graham Greene novel called The End of the Affair. And I'm quoting from memory here, but my memory serves that the, the character, the main character, the interlocutor, I mean, the, the narrator at the end of the, of the book says, I believe in you, God, and I have only one request. Leave me the hell alone. That sort of cutting off of the possibility of being saved, which Graham Greene so well embodies in the main character, the narrator, is that sin against the Holy Spirit. God can't violate that. So our acceptance of redemption, our acceptance of the truth, our acceptance of beauty and goodness is key to our salvation. It's not forced on us. It's something we accept. Is Thrasymachus then a damned man? Well, like I said, Plato and the ancients didn't exactly believe in a hell or damnation, like, like Christians profess. It's more like a, um, the Jewish place of burning, Gehenna, or the depths of Tahom. The Greeks called that Tartarus, the black pit of nothingness. And it's, it's into that that Thrasymachus seems to dwell or fall or, or be falling. He certainly seems to exhibit traits parallel to what we might call a damned man. He's certainly an unjust man. And that seems to indicate to us that this, this sense of, unjust, of, of justice being the, the um, advantage of the strong is a damnable sense. And tyrants and dictators that subscribe to such a definition of justice, or even to such a vision that the world is purely material and that the gaining of power is the only thing to be sought after. That vision, Plato seems to suggest, is a vision of damnation. Well, that whole scene reminds me of a bullfight or a wrestler grappling with an opponent like... Like a like at a rodeo when the cowpuncher has to wrestle a calf to the ground. Three times he grapples with it until at last the calf, exhausted, submits to a branding. It's kind of appropriate. It's like the, the branding of the beast in the book of Apocalypse, you know, who has escaped for the third time from his master. So he's branded on the forehead with the, the number of six six six. Perhaps that's appropriate for it. Thrasymachus, who is kind of like the Minotaur and threatens to devour the souls of Glaucon and others. He's kind of like the, the black pit of nothingness, the Tartarus, or uh, Greeks also use the term for that black pit of nothingness, chaos, the chaos pit. He's kind of like Grendel out of the later poem Beowulf. His ideas, uh, his attitude... They all threaten to grind up and devour young men. Anyone who's subjected to his views gets, gets an infected, ground up, devoured by the chaos dragon. Is there any doubt why Thrasymachus is a professor of rhetoric? I mean, perhaps things haven't changed that much in the educational field. You get a, an educational leader, teacher, who instills in pupils ideas that simply grind them to powder, which infect them with a sense of nothingness and purposelessness until they end up rioting in the streets and burning things down. Perhaps Plato had a special hatred for such teachers who lead people in the wrong direction, a direction that really only results in that meat grinder of chaos, that trash compactor of Tartarus. Well, Socrates, anyway, puts to a grudging Thrasymachus the ideas about justice, that justice is needed to accomplish anything. 
He says that injustice produces factions, hatreds, and quarrels. Justice produces unanimity and friendship. Socrates suggests that wherever injustice comes into being, injustice, first of all, makes that thing unable to accomplish anything together with itself due to faction and difference. And uh, that it makes that thing an enemy both to itself and to everything opposite and to the just. He says that the unjust man is an enemy to himself and to others and to the gods. And that the just man, in contrast, is friends with himself, friends with others, and friends to the gods. Socrates drags Thrasymachus towards agreeing that justice, in fact, is the essential work of the soul. A just soul ruling justly, while an unjust soul rules unjustly. So justice is a, is a virtue of a soul. It is, it is the virtue of a soul. And injustice is vice in the soul. As virtue and vice produce good and bad living, the just soul and the just man will live a good life, while the unjust soul and the unjust man will live a bad life. And consequently, justice produces happiness. And injustice makes one wretched. So he still hasn't really defined what justice is. He simply said that justice, it seems, is absolutely essential to being happy and living a good life being a good man. And injustice is the opposite. It's an infection of the soul, a vice, a crippling element. The very point of the argument, of, of the entire work, as I, I think Glaucon suggests, or Socrates suggests, that, that this, this question of justice is not, it's not just like any old question. You know, this, this is a fundamental question. It's about the way one should live. And when we discuss justice, we're not just discussing it in an academic way, as though the outcome doesn't have any meaning for us, because it has absolute meaning for us. To understand it and to live by justice is to live a happy, complete, healthy life. And to not understand justice or to live unjustly is to live a crippling, violent, horrific life. I mean, knowing what justice is, Socrates says, is the very key that allows us to have a happy life. And at the end of book one, after dragging Thrasymachus through all of this and defeating Thrasymachus's nefarious idea that might makes right, Socrates is at last ready to discuss what justice is and therefore how they are to act in order to win the happy life. He seems ready to go with this discussion, but things aren't going to be quite so rosy. Because as Socrates seems very satisfied with the defeat of Thrasymachus, it turns out that this is just a prelude to a much larger question. Because we're going to come up in book two with uh, the question of what really is justice? Here's the problem you really need to fix. Structurally, of the ten books, then, this is sort of like the narthex. If we think of this as a verbal cathedral or based on a pattern upon which early cathedrals are based or early temples are based. This is the narthex. Book one is the entrance way into the main part of the cathedral, which is the Republic. Only at the beginning of book two do we actually enter into the real argument and find out not only about justice, but also about this mythological vision that Plato puts forth a vision that will help us to live a life of happiness and peace where we ultimately are friends with ourselves and with others and with the gods as well. So thanks for joining me this time around discussing book one and the nature of justice, looking at the definitions of justice and the challenge of Thrasymachus with his might makes right. Join me in the next episode when we look at book two. We examine the real challenge about justice. What's really infecting the soul of Glaucon and the souls of so many people, young men and women, who don't understand what the purpose of living really is.
And we see that great myth of Gygus's ring. And we begin the construction of a city, a politeia, a republic in speech. Until next time, thanks so much. Here's a little tune that tells the truth. Pick up. A man ain't a man till a woman calls his name. A man ain't a man till he sets a woman's heart aflame. Till a man makes a woman obey his every rule. He's just a little fish in a great big pool. A man ain't a man till a woman calls.